I'm going to ask all our teens and young ladies and men, I want you to pay attention a little extra to the sermon today, okay? And I want you to pick mom and dad's brain about it. So mom and dad, you better be listening real good. I want you to listen, then I'm going to give you a test. (laughs) Grace, God's grace. Is anybody enjoying the Lord today? Did anybody enjoy the presence of God as we worshipped? How about seeing a good friend that you love in Christ? How about realizing our sins are really forgiven? Did you ever get tired of that? I hope not. My goodness, that would be terrible. As a matter of fact, I have to say it's actually impossible. Uh, I hope finding my sermon's not impossible because it just got lost somewhere in cyberspace. So stay with me here. This is not good. Oh, there it is. I want to speak about grace today. We sing about it. We talk about it. We thank God for it. We cry over it. It means everything to us. It is the one word, if we were trying to look for one word, that defines biblical religion. It's grace. It's an expression of God's love, yes, but it is grace. You don't know God's love until you know grace and mercy first. Mercy, grace is an expression of God's love. God's love is not just a word you talk about, sort of like some kind of earthly love. It's a love that actually did something for us. I want to speak about this tonight out of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. And uh, grace can be defined as gracious or graciously. These are the words that are used in the New Testament for grace. Charity, benefit, thankfulness, beauty, favor. These are the kind of words that try to capture what grace is all about. But the Bible doesn't give us a definition by a word. It gives it in a story. To really understand God's grace, you've got to see the trajectory. I'm going to read ten verses today. As we're going to read it, please watch the trajectory of the ten verses. Where it begins and where it ends. That's grace. Let's look at the trajectory of grace. Could you say that with me today? The trajectory of grace. Praise God. I will read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. If we could pull that up, please, Jackie. There we go. Listen to the Apostle Paul. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, what can we possibly say to this text? How can I, Brian Martin, in this 21st century Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, do any real justice to what the Apostle Paul is teaching us? The only way I can possibly do anything, God, is by grace. Give this preacher grace, God, as I try to explain the mystery of Jesus Christ and his great love for us and his wonderful trajectory of being dead one day and being raised with Christ the next, Father God. From being a son of disobedience, a child of wrath, to being God's workmanship, created for good works, God. Let us grasp this. I ask God as a pastor now, would you bless every Christian in this room with an understanding of these ten verses. I pray these ten verses never sound the same again to them. And I pray they don't look at themselves or you or what Christ has done or this world ever the same again. I ask you by your mercy, God, to illuminate our minds to understand the great work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Med medication makes me real dry, so please stay with me, okay? Like I said, grace can be defined in the Bible as gracious or graciously or charity or benefit, thankfulness, thankful, beauty, favor. But those words alone don't do justice to what actually took place for us. Some scholars like to call it eternal life at Christ's expense. I like that because when you put it all together, that's what it is. We get a lot at Christ's expense. The only thing you and I bring to our life of faith, do you know what it is? One thing. And I got this from John MacArthur. We bring sin. That's all we got. That's it. God, here's my sin. That's all you have. If you try to bring anything else, it spoils it rotten. The only thing we can offer to God is a thankful heart for forgiveness after that. That's it. I was watching TV the other night. I was out preaching in Dallas. And for everybody that was praying for me, thank you very much. It went really well from beginning to end. And I'm really glad to be here this morning. But I was so far out in the woods. Even the satellite dish, it was only two channels you could watch to figure it out. And the one channel was bad and the other one was worse. So I listened to the bad one, sort of fall asleep to, and all it was was infomercials. You know, these before and after pictures, you know. And one of them was to sell this pill that you can get into a bikini in two weeks. You can be buffed out in a week. and it, every, You eat this pill and it changes you overnight. And of course, there's the testimonials. So there's the guy like this. And now he's like this. He's in the gym. He's got two girls on each side, you know. And I'll let you know how it works because I ordered it, so uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But those before and after pictures, they get you. Tonight we are looking at a before and after picture. That's what the Apostle Paul is writing. The reason he's writing, because there's a church that he found in the, book of, in the book of Acts, in the 19th chapter, you can see the town of Ephesus. Paul preached there for three years. A mighty revival broke out. 
Many Jews and many pagans got saved all at the same time. A matter of fact, at the end of that work, it says all of Asia heard the word of God. That's how powerful Paul preached. The conversions in Acts chapter 19 are worth just reading for the conversions alone. Read Acts 19 when you go home. And see how marvelous the conversions were. But now all these people are together and guess what? They really don't like each other. Human personality. God can save the soul but has to sanctify the personality. He has to get people who once were arch enemies. And they were. Please don't miss this. The Old Testament and New Testament make it clear that the Jew had no association whatever with the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were not happy about this and so there was an animosity that's very strong in scripture between the two groups. But in this very chapter we don't read it. He brings the two groups together and he makes them what? One group. He calls it a new creation. We're neither Jew nor Gentile, male or fee, free or slave or anything. You're all one now in Christ. And what he's trying to do to bring peace is not run over and put out every burning fire. Pastors got to be careful to put out burning fires all the time. Tensions in the church. Paul's way of doing it is saying, stop the madness and listen to who you really are without Christ. That's what he's saying. Listen to what Jesus has done for you. And no one has bragging rights. No one's better than anybody else. We were all dead and we're all saved by grace. Get over it. No one's superior. No one's inferior. You all need grace. That's what changes it. Sometimes you're trying to run out. You're trying to talk to personalities. Well, you know, be nice and, and do it. Stop it. Don't you understand you're saved by grace? That's the end of the story. When you, as a pastor, when you start, you know, but, but you're saved by grace, there's no rebuttal after that. The argument ends and dies there. You want to keep peace in the church? You want to have peace in the church? Let every member of a church know these ten verses of scripture. And you will have peace with all people. Just forgive me as I have to drink a little extra water today. get very excited especially over this text of scripture in these 10 verses we have here today one of the clearest explanations of the gospel the good news of God's saving grace anywhere in scripture it is the most condensed 10 verses of scripture I believe in the New Testament that deals with the death resurrection and the birth of the Christian life all the way to good works prepared beforehand by God. It covers our whole life before Christ and after Christ. Hopefully I can do some kind of justice to it. What God has done for humanity and only God can do for humanity. And that's make people right with himself and to change the unchangeable. Take a look at the people next to you. No, you don't have to. 
But think about it. Everybody in this room, God has done something for us that no human being can do for themselves. Nothing. Nothing. Paul does this by the classic before and after picture. Like our infomercial, it captures the imagination. And that's what Paul is doing. You have to think through this. You gotta be, this is not the kind of scripture you want to try to apply to your life on right away. You sit back and you look at this 10 verses of scripture as you would look at a sunset. You're just overwhelmed. You don't say a word. You don't have to. Everybody's looking at the same sunset. Everybody's overwhelmed. The only language is the language of awe. It's like, wow. You know, it's, it's, the expression is in the eyes. And that's what these 10 verses of scripture are. It paints a picture of extraordinary, amazing grace that is to humble and silence the hardest critic. Can this wonder pill be so good? I'll let you know. As I said, I ordered it. Can it change me to look 20 years younger? Can it get me to be ready for my reunion, my vacation? That's everything it promised. This is the Bible's way of speaking to our hearts on spiritual matters. Everything in our reading tonight is of the spiritual kind. Is the problem that bad? From a spiritual moral point of view, do I really need a makeover? Well, I'll answer that question for you. Yes. Very much. You need a makeover. I mean, you're so dead, God has to make you alive. That's how bad the makeover is. And if so, is God willing to help me? I don't know. I think I know just about everybody in this room today. Have I blown it so bad in my life that I'm outside God's grace? Man, understand, please, 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 everyone in this room who's a Christian, God has deputized us to go to the worst people in the world that really believe in their heart of hearts and they have a right to believe it, that God wants nothing to do with them. And we are allowed to go to them and say, God loves you. God wants to forgive you. Only we can say that. Only the born again believer can say that. Because grace is not something. Forgiveness is not something you have to earn. You cannot earn a gift. Or, I'm not really that bad. Spiritually, I look pretty good. I'm a good person. I'm ready to meet God and give an account of my life on earth. Are you ready to give an account of all your inner thoughts, all your desires, every word you've ever said, every action you ever did? God watches and sees and hears everything. He has jurisdiction over the mind. He has jurisdiction over the heart. The apostle is writing to Christians in a place called Ephesus, which is basically it's modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them so that they will understand the full implication of what God has done for them through Christ. And this is something John and myself, or anybody comes into this pulpit, we try to do that. We're always trying to 
show you as clear as we can all the implications of everything God has ever done for us. To change us from the inside out. So they can live it out in in their personal lives with gratitude. That's the whole thing. Grace leads to... Grace leads to... Say it like you mean it. Grace leads to... That's it. That's how God does it. The law of Moses didn't lead anybody to be grateful. As a matter of fact, it's scary. You have to obey every law. Grace leads to gratitude. It's a hallmark characteristic of the Christian faith. Those who have been saved, those who are born again, those who have repented, those who are forgiven, those who are now sons and daughters of God, start to wear gratitude in their heart. And I'll tell you now, if it's weak in you, you'll have a very weak Christian experience. So whether these converts were from the Jewish background or the Gentile background, whether they were rich or poor, and this epistle deals with all of it, educated or not, male or female, slave or master, husband or wife, parents and children, they would all have to live in harmony because of this gracious work of God on their behalf. Knowing that all are debtors to God for his grace, and in God's eyes all humans are equally the same. Jesus Christ has made the playing field even by showing all that they have sinned against God and needs God's grace for eternal life. So no one should live with a superior attitude towards others and think they're going to boast arrogantly before God as though I deserve to be here, I'm good enough to be here. Has anybody ever said I'm good enough to be in heaven? Did you ever feel without words that you're better than someone else though? Because if you have, that's what you're saying. I want to say that again. No one ever says, God, I'm good enough to go to heaven. Who would say that? But we do say in our heart, I'm not as bad as this guy. And we compare. The Bible calls that boasting. Be careful when you're comparing yourself to other people. It's boasting. Compare yourself only to Christ and you'll be graceful. Okay, let's go here. He does this by showing the miserable plight they were in. Then what God did for them through Jesus and what the after picture looks like. And hopefully as we're reading you saw the trajectory of the before and the after. Let's go to our text. Let's read verses 1 to 3 and I'll make comments. And you were dead in trespasses and sin. Please say this with me. I was dead. I was dead. In trespasses and sins. Say it like you know it. I was dead in trespasses and sins. Very good. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You will not see 
three stronger verses of scripture that characterize human beings outside of Jesus Christ. None are needed after this. This seals the deal. Paul in three verses sums up man's spiritual plight. He's dead. Spiritually speaking. And I will do the best I can to unpack that for you. He reminds them of the grave spiritual condition they were in. You want to bring peace? Remind people who they used to be. As a pastor, that's what I do. Let's go back to square one. What are you doing here? I'm a Christian. Oh, what were you before a Christian? I was A, B, C, and D. Oh, let's remember that as we move forward in counseling. Please don't forget ever what Christ has done for us and who we used to be. All right? He reminds them of the grave spiritual condition they were all in. He sums up the total mess in one word. Dead. I've looked up the word dead. Do you know what it means? It means dead. No interpretation is needed. We all know what dead means. Our inability is because we don't want to. That's really dead. We actually choose to be dead. He sums it all up. Spiritually dead. Unresponsive to God. Unresponsive to his moral law both written in the Ten Commandments and on the conscience of all men. No affection for God. Both dead and death is the great equalizer in humanity. As Christians, all humans die and all humans are born spiritually dead. Every human being, every child in this room, everyone in this room is spiritually dead without Jesus Christ. God will not accept anyone in this room. Let me say it again. Please look at me, give me your attention. God will accept no one in this room only through Jesus Christ not on our own accord we're spiritually dead unable unwilling to come to God that's how dead we are we can hear the truth but are still unwilling to come unless Christ does something for us the indictment goes further You would think dead is enough. But he goes on, he says, we followed the course of this world. And what he means by that is they lived in a godless society where God's reality had no jurisdiction in life. A society that lived to please its own pleasures. God's good world had degraded into self-gratifying society. He goes further behind the scenes. If that's not good enough, he even unmasks Satan as the originator and father of disobedience, calling him the prince of the power of the air, and somehow, unbeknownst to everybody, every human being is spiritually influenced by Satan. That is a bold, bold statement. Every human being, young or old, is under demonic influence. 
And that demonic influence is to get them to think there's no one true living God who's going to hold men accountable for their sin. Remember the first law, you shall not die. All human beings today, if you speak to people from everywhere and you put them to the test and you put them to the litmus test and say, are you going to go to heaven? Everyone thinks, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not going to spiritually die. Please, children, listen to me. You will spiritually die without a relationship with Christ. Young and old will spiritually die without Jesus Christ in their life. He goes on. As now heirs of Satan's same faith. And what is that? The just wrath of God. Children of wrath. Let me tell you something about the Apostle Paul. How many people here have been a Christian for 10 years? 5 years? 30 years? 40 years? 50? We've got a couple of people. How does that sound for an opening to a sermon? <laughs> but do you know why we sing and why we praise? Did anybody sing from the heart today? It's because it doesn't end in chapter verse 3. It goes on to verse 4. That's why we're singing. Because we're not who we used to be. In verses 3, Paul identifies what made them spiritually dead. They lived in the passions of sinful desires. Sinful flesh, he calls it. And they carried out the desires of the body and the mind with no regard to God's moral law. They become a law unto themselves. Mankind does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, with whom he ever wants to do, with no regard to what he's doing or what God might think. Period. That's what Paul is saying. They lived in the passions of sinful flesh and carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Sin is an inner craving that seeks its own fulfillment. Even at the expense of others. Passions and desires gone crazy. It expresses itself in thought and desires. And then in deed and action. It possesses the whole person and there is no escape. The will of man is sold out to sin. The emotions of man is sold out to sin. The intellect, the, want, the mind, the thinking, the reasoning aspect of human beings is sold to sin. It can't break the gravity pull of sin. No matter how hard mankind tries, it can never please God. The only natural verdict God can give to mankind is the same one he gave Satan. Children of wrath. You know, there's 66 books in the Bible. 1,087 chapters. And nothing it says is good about human nature. Not one word. The only thing it says positive about human nature is we were created in the image of God. 
66 books, all testify, 40 authors, three continents, over 1,600 years, three languages, they all say the same thing about human nature. It's dead and unacceptable to God. God loves human beings. Don't miss this. But he downright hates human character. What we've become, what we've done with it is not good. The only verdict is that we are children of wrath. Wrath. That is the full weight of God's displeasure against sin and all who selfishly live in it. I pray I did some kind of justice to those first three verses. I pray it gripped, it, it gripped you to a point of feeling helpless, hopeless. Because if it did, stick around. Listen to verse 4. 4, 5, 6, and 7. But into this world dominated by sin and Satan came Jesus Christ to champion the cause of humanity and to save them from their misery. You're not going to see this in any other religious book, any other philosophy. God came and took his own wrath for us. Listen to how Jesus championed our cause. But God. Everybody say, but God. If it wasn't for that word, but, there would be no hope for mankind. That is it. The only reason there's hope for those who are dead in sins and trespasses, the only reason there is hope for those who walk to the power of the prince of the power of the air, who are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, is that God decided not to leave us in this condition. This is grace. This is what we sing about. This is what we talk about. This is why I abandoned everything and I followed Jesus. Because of verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, where I was dead and I was dead 30 years ago when I walked through the doors of a church. I was as dead as dead could be. But I heard, but God loves you, Brian. And if you're saved, that's what you heard. That's grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved and raised us up. He doesn't stop with just the salvation. That would have been good enough alone. Just to be forgiven and just to be saved would have been fine. But he goes on to say... And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are co-heirs of Christ. Whatever God has given the Son, it is ours by adoption. Only eternity will give fulfillment to this text. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me give you some comments. The only answer there is to sin in the just wrath of God is God's mercy. That's it. There is no other antidote. 
Trying better won't do it. Yeah. Reading a Bible more won't do it. Going to church more won't do it. Selling, your, selling your, all your money and giving it to the poor. And even Paul says to burn your body at the stake. But if you have no love for God, it's meaningless. The only answer to verses 1, 2, and 3 is verse 4, 5, and 6. God's mercy. As Paul says here, not just mercy, but rich in mercy. You know what it means? He saturated mercy on you. John calls it in, first, in, in John chapter 1, grace upon grace. It's waves of grace. As soon as one wave knocks you down on the ocean shore and you get up, another wave hits you. And then you get up and another wave hits you. And another wave hits you. And it keeps on hitting you until the last one that hits you brings you home to the Lord. Even death is God's grace to us because it brings us home to the Lord. His mercy is a deliberate expression of his love. Love is the motivating element. But grace and mercy is its expression. I can sit here and tell somebody I love you. But it is different when I come from behind the pulpit and hug you and give you a big embrace. And really show you affection and show you in my eyes and show you in a way my mannerism that I really care for you. And then you say, Brian, I need some help. Whatever I can do, I give to you. That's what God did for us. That's grace. God met our biggest and greatest need. Matter of fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he demonstrated his love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. Love is the motivating element. Mercy is its expression. That even while they were willfully dead spiritually. Don't ever forget this when you talk about spiritual things. Spiritual death is a willful spiritual death. Say it with me. Willful spiritual death. Willful. It's like addiction. We know after a long time of addiction, people get, it's a disease. I don't disagree with it. Something they can't stop. It's a weakness in someone's flesh. But it started out with willfulness. Because somewhere along the line, you had to say no to your conscience. You had to say no to your parents. You had to say no to good direction. You had to say no to the consequences. You said no to the judge, no to the wife, no to this. You said no, 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 no. And you find yourself in a lost position. How did I get there? It was willful. Are you weak? Absolutely. Can't do nothing. Your will is sold off. That's how it is with sin. It's willful. That even while they were willfully dead in sin, not looking for God, not caring about God, not caring about their consequences, God remedied the situation on their behalf, and Christ came to seek and to save those who are willfully lost. Amen? Amen. In spite of human beings self-seeking, God sought them. And he spiritually raised them. And what that means from the inside out, he made them alive spiritually. 
alive to him, alive to live for him with new religious affections that want to please him, a desire to say, Daddy, I want to live for you, I want to love you, I want to hear from you. And this is all by grace, undeserved mercy. And not just that, but he gives us new identities. As seated with Christ, as they were now sons and daughters of God, and not children of wrath anymore, but recipients of grace, before and after. I can tell you right now, when that order comes with the things I ordered, it's not going to fulfill. God fulfills. If you put your trust into Christ and repented, repented of your sin, you are new creations in Christ. at the expense of Jesus our sin still had to be dealt with Christ's love for you and me was greater than our love for sin his suffering for them suffering that removed the wrath of God he took it upon himself God's wrath to sin is his just reaction God has to judge sin. So Jesus took our judgment for us. He reminds them again of this extraordinary display of love and mercy. is God's grace. Listen to verses 8, 9, and 10. He says this. Listen to this extraordinary display of love by God. We were dead. Then he saved us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Only the Christian go go to the dying man, the dying criminal, with only seconds to live, and that man can be saved. Just like the thief on the cross. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of works. That means being religious or being good. So that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you see the trajectory? I'm going to read verse 1, then verse 10. You ready? Stay there. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. For we are his workmanship now, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even before there was one molecule, one atom, before there was time and space, And the only thing that was, was eternal existence between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's when God decided to do something for you and me. Go read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. 
prepared beforehand, before the ages of the world, is what Paul's just saying. That we should walk in them. With one stroke of the pen, Paul wipes out all hope. With one stroke. Paul does that whole verse 3 over. Verses 1, verses 2, verses 3. All over. One swipe of the poor on Calvary. And God took care of everything. And by one stroke of the pen, Paul wipes out all hope that they could have found favor with God by the religious resume. I really feel bad for the religious people in my life. See, we're with religion. Most of them look just probably better than we do sometimes, morally. But they're trusting in themselves, not in Christ. He sums it up this way in one word, boasting. Boasting means I earned God's favor. The only answer to their sin was God's grace. God has done something for them and something for you and me. And now God called them to believing in faith, trust, And what God has done for them in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. We're saved by grace and through faith alone in Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. that's not even it if that was to stop there that would be good news but listen how he goes on God has prepared good works instead of walking according to the self-centered sinful nature that Brian Martin used to walk to and Terry Martin used to walk to 30 years ago that was our life we were walking according to the self-centered miserable life we were sinful by nature with our sinful desires and our sinful passions but God put something new in our heart it's called the new heart with new inclinations of love for God and love for what is righteous you know what that means I'm glad you asked the good works God has prepared is not what we do it's why we do it that's the difference it's not that I'm new. Do, of course, I'm doing new things and you're doing new things. But it's the reason we do anything good. It's because we're stirred up by God to do it. We have a new religious affection now. These inclinations to care for people. This growing love for other people, other human beings who are still dead in trespasses and sins. Especially my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we were all dead in trespasses and sins. But now God has called us all to live in harmony as a new creation, as one body. We're both male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. We come together and we give glory to God by living in harmony with each other. 
Ephesians chapter 4. To live in unity and harmony with each other. Counseling one person one day, and they gave me this long, detailed argument of all the wrongs with everybody in the church. When you hear those, <laughs> I said, I'm like, all right, go ahead. I give you them 10 minutes, you know. I said, do me a favor, go home, read the book of Ephesians, and bring your argument to God. I never saw a person again. I said, that argument's too big for me. Bring it to God and read the book of Ephesians and see what God did with quarreling people. He reminded them, you were all dead. You all needed to be saved. It's all by grace. No one's better. It's all a free gift. When you get past that, come back and then you tell me about your argument. This was the motivating influence 2,000 years ago that brought Jew and Gentile together, brought the rich and the poor together, bring the free and the slave together, male and female, and anything in between become one new spiritual entity. This is the Christian church that represents God and his grace in this world. You know what I love? Me and John talk about this all the time. I love when Christians start to get the big picture. That is like one of the big steps in maturity. When a Christian starts to take a look, not from their own remote little life. How does this affect me? What about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? And they step out and life around them stinks, but they don't care because they're looking at the big picture. Man, that is the one giant step of mankind that every Christian needs to take. Because when you get outside of yourself and you see the bigness of God, how incredible God is and what he's done to bring peace between human beings. This has been the believer's experience ever since. A response to a message of forgiveness that changes their life from the inside out with new affections for God and one another. That's the gospel. Nothing can change a person or a society like the love of God. Let me go into some application. In bridging this ancient text 2,000 years ago, to us today, two questions need to be asked. Are you ready? Is it really that bad? Hopefully I painted a picture that's really bad. Do you know why? Because it's really bad. Is life that bad today? Are we really that bad? The answer is yes, we are. And if so, is God really that great? He is. We live in a culture that has abandoned any real sense of morality. I hope you know that by now. Our children are attacked all the time. The school system and the world we live in is telling boys they can be girls and girls they can be boys. Children, listen to me. I want every child looking at me. You are who God made you, and you're beautiful, and you're precious, you're precious. God loves you, 
Yes, even you. Loves you and he cherishes you. He's got a plan for you. If you're a young girl, God has a husband for you one day in a beautiful family. And if you're a young man, God's going to have a wife and children for you. Yes, it's really that girl. Bad. We live in a culture that has abandoned any real sense of morality. And find it hard to see spiritual side of life. They really do. The people we live around, they don't, they don't see the spiritual side of life. Does it really matter? Get with the times, Brian. Christianity needs to evolve. <laughs> Had a guy told me that once. You need to catch on. All the other religions are catching on. They woke. And they woke to find out they're still dead in sins and transgressions. That's what they woke to. The reality, application two. Application one, yeah, it's that bad. Application two. The reality of Satan as a beguiling entity in this society is not to be taken seriously. People just don't take Satan serious. They really don't think that Satan's real and that the whole world lies under his influence. Even though Hollywood pumps out supernatural movies, dozens and as many number one box office sellers, and they have this great morbid interest in the cult. If Satan wasn't real, why is it selling? It's amazing how people like to be entertained about Satan. That doesn't look too bad, right? Let me give parents an aha moment here. It desensitizes you to the reality of satanic influence. Don't ever forget it. It desensitizes you. And that's what Satan wants. Be careful. Three. And the thought of God being a God that has wrath against human beings. We live in a society that has a hard time with this wrath. Wrath is a natural rejection. If you were choking on something, what would you do? It's a reflex. That's what wrath is. Wrath is a reflex from a holy God. He's not saying, I wonder if they mind if I get angry at, at their sin. God's not negotiating with anybody. God calls. He makes the rules. It's interesting about God's wrath and God's justice. And I'll close with this. I share this many times. I'll ask you if you have a, a hard time with God's wrath. It's an expression of his justice. What happens when someone does you really wrong? What rises up real quick? Think about it. Come on, be real with me. Anger. Resentment. Want to get even. Want to have vengeance. Because human beings are created in the image of God, but our justice system is greatly flawed. <laughs> Not God's. But it's still there. There's enough of justice in us. There's this natural cry for justice when we see a child hurt, when you see an innocent person hurt and harmed. There's this 
this guy, you got, we got, we need blood. Like I said, God's justice and ours, ours is deeply flawed. God's is perfect. All sin will be dealt with. The wages of sin is death. There is an inward cry within all of us for justice. How much more, God? I can go on, I can go on. I got more notes here, I'll close. Please understand something. Human being, human society are walking dead. Don't get mad at dead people. Don't get mad at them. They don't know any better. Just like you and I didn't know any better. Until God was rich in mercy towards us. This text, these ten verses, along with a lot of other teachings, is what melted my heart towards all human beings. These are my cousins in Adam. The world out there, theologically, is your cousin in Adam. And we are called to care for them, to meet their needs, not get angry with the world, that at the hope that we can tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. When you understand this theologically, and we'll get back... It's hard to be mad with brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let it fester. Don't ever let tension with another believer fester in your heart. Please listen to me. Satan loves it. That's chapter 5 of this book. It's all there. Paul was writing for a reason. Where there is tension in the church, where there's tension in the heart, Satan is not far. The answer to it is theology. The answer to man's need of peace is theological when you really know what God has done for you, you will be a different person and you will treat others differently Father we thank you, we love you we thank you for the word God, prayerfully I did some kind of justice to this wonderful word, these wonderful truths God, these timeless realities and that how much we need you and I pray Father God that more so now than ever before Father God we genuinely love you from the heart and we genuinely love one another from the heart, help us in this endeavor God, forgive us God of all our transgression all our sins God and I thank you oh God that we are now more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Amen.